KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Harold Meyerson will talk about the politics of billionaires in Los Angeles, starting with Eli Brode, who died last week. He co-chaired Democrats for Nixon in 1972. And our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about Exterminate All the Brutes, a four-part documentary now streaming on HBO Max, which presents a sweeping historical argument about four centuries of white supremacy, colonization, and genocide. It's strong stuff and amazing that such a completely radical documentary would be streaming on the prestige channel in America. HBO is owned by one of the world's largest corporations, AT&T, with a current market cap of $220 billion. The fact that they have funded and broadcast this film shows that something profound about the world is changing after Donald Trump on the one hand and Black Lives Matter on the other. First up, Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii. She's the only immigrant currently serving in the Senate, and she was the first Asian American woman elected to that office back in 2013. She serves on the Judiciary Committee, also the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and others, and she's the author of a wonderful new autobiography. It's called Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator Maisie Hirono, it's an honor and a pleasure to say... Welcome to the program. The same here. Aloha, John. Well, before we talk about your book and your life, I'd like to talk just for a minute about the filibuster. Every week on this show, we talk about legislation that won't become law unless we have the filibuster reform. I know you're in favor of filibuster reform, but a couple of your Democratic colleagues don't seem to be. Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. What can you tell us about efforts to move them to change their positions? As Democrats, I know the bottom line for both Kirsten and Joe is that they want to actually get things done for the people as opposed to screwing them over. And so at some point when all of these bills, including the infrastructure bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the George Floyd police reform and the gun legislation, when all these things fall by the wayside, they will come to the conclusion that we need filibuster reform. And in fact, I think I, I, I heard Joe Manchin talk about supporting a talking filibuster. So I hope he's still open to that idea. Because if that's what we're going to start with, then sure, make the people who don't want these bills to be passed stand there and keep talking about why they're against the bill. You served on the Judiciary Committee when Brett Kavanaugh was rammed through. I know you walked out of one of the hearings in, in protest along with Kamala Harris and a couple of other people. Why was that? Well, that was when uh, the chairman, uh, Chuck Grassley, decided that he just wanted to bring the whole matter to a vote. And we were not through, the Democrats anyway, we were not through with uh, what we wanted to call forth. And so as he was trying to bang the gavel, Kamala and I, so the, there are three of us, Kamala, Cory Booker, and I, we're, we're the people of color on that committee. And we all sit together, not because we're people of color, but we're the sort of the least senior people. So we often communicate non-verbally. And when that was beginning to happen, Kamala and I looked at each other and without saying anything, we both got up and left. And I said to Corey, are you coming? And he said, <laughs> I have my remarks against all of this. I have to give it. I said, we said, OK, well, all right then. But he, otherwise, he would have come with us. 
we walked down and it's eventually what led to the so-called FBI uh, additional investigation, which was a sham. And then when it came to the confirmation vote for Amy Coney Barrett on the Senate floor, what did you say? I walked up to the clerk and I, it was an exclamation point to my no vote. I said, hell no. Hell no. Yeah, hell no. <laughs> so now uh, President Biden has appointed a commission to consider expanding the Supreme Court. The Constitution says the number of justices is decided by a majority vote of Congress. It's been changed many times. Are you in favor of expanding the court beyond the current nine? Oh, I am in favor of court reform. And I think his commission is going to review what needs to happen. I don't know that they're going to suggest expanding the court. But we now have basically a 63 very ideologically identifiable court, Supreme Court. And that is not good. If you can read a case and be able to determine that it was written by a bunch of conservative, ideologically driven people, that means that they're not using the facts or, or, or the relevant cases. So that's not good for our country. So that's what's happening. And I think we need to provide balance to that court. It could mean cycling circuit court judges through the court. I'm, I, Totally open to that. And term limits. I mean, I don't see why anybody should have lifetime appointments to anything. But unfortunately, putting in term limits will not affect the people who are already on the court. So you might have to do more than one thing. Okay, let's talk about your book, Heart of Fire, and the amazing story of your life. You were born on a rice farm in Japan in 1947. Of course, this is after the end of the war. You did not move to Hawaii until you were seven. Please explain how that happened. My mother was married to a person who was both a compulsive gambler and an alcoholic. So he was he certainly didn't take care of the family. It was an abusive situation with her in-laws uh, living. She did live there, living all together. She was uh, treated like a slave. Uh, my father, by the way, never showed that he was he had these compulsions and and all of that. So my mother uh, knew she made a horrible marriage, and it uh, uh, at one point she decided she had to get away from him completely. Women in Japan don't do that; <laughs> they they just kind of gum on. There's a phrase, you know, you just kind of stick it out. But my mother um, was born in Hawaii, so she had dual citizenship, and she decided that uh, very courageously. Uh, to bring her children, who never knew anything about Hawaii or America, and she brings us to our to this country so that we could have a chance at a better life, a chance we would never have had in Japan. Well, of course, you came from a traditional Japanese culture where women stayed very much out of the public. Your book has a photo of your mother walking a union picket line in the 1950s during an organizing campaign at the Honolulu Advertiser. I think you were in high school at the time. So I think my first question should be not how did you become a public person and an activist, but how did your mother do it? Oh, my mother was a great believer in workers. And so uh, she, we actually entered the middle class when my mother's workplace became unionized. And so she marched, she held the picket sign because she believed that that's, uh, that's what she should do. And so, yes, I watched a mother who was very determined and without having to be very noisy about it. And she just took control of her situation and her life. And I learned a lot from that. She did not sit me down and say, here are my life's lessons. She just showed me by how she conducted herself. 
In your book, you talk about being an anti-war activist during the Vietnam War. You were a student at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. You still remember a sign from a campus sit-in. What did it say? We won't fight a rich man's war. Wow. And why did that make such a big impression on you? Well, it was the first time that I had ever questioned my government. And I wasn't even one of the leaders of the anti-war movement, but it was enough to open my eyes to uh, question government, to march. It was a revelation to me that we could do that. And, and so whenever I hear the song that we shall overcome, it's a civil rights as well as an anti-war song. It still brings goosebumps and it takes me back to that time. It's one of the reasons we have uh, we don't have the draft anymore and, and so many things that came out of that hor- horrible time. The New York Times did a photo portrait of you in 2018 and asked you to bring an artifact that had special meaning for you. What did you bring? I brought a copy of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. I read that book in college. And while I was raised in a very non-traditional kind of a way with a different background, I still had taken on some of the expectations of the dominant culture, which was I should get married and have children. I read that book in college and suddenly a light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, why am I even thinking that some guy is going to come and take care of me? I've never experienced that in my entire life. So I... I sort of set that aside, and, and that book really opened my eyes. But despite your anti-war activism and your feminist consciousness, you spent decades in public life as what you call a polite and reserved person. Today, however, you are fierce and outspoken. What happened? I was always a very determined person, and there would be times when I would be very terse and very... Um, very clear in my time in politics, but I never had to have a sort of the sustained vocalization of how uh, how I disagree with things. But believe me, the Trump presidency uh, made that a necessity because one thing I can't stand is a bully. And Trump was the biggest bully of them all. And at one point, uh, much as I was not comfortable talking to the national media, Um, I began to talk to them. And the first time I stepped up to a whole bunch of them with all their mics arrayed, and I said, you know, he's a liar, he's a misogynist and admitted sexual predator, and he should just resign. I think I caught the national press people by surprise, too, because it's like, oh, my gosh, she speaks. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no going turning back, though. And it was always in me. I just didn't have to be so vocal about things. But uh, the the Trump presidency was so terrible in so many harmful ways that uh, there was no going back. And I speak very plainly, as you know. I don't sugarcoat things. And I don't do what I call the Senate speak because I never learned how to do that. I do admire my colleagues who are really, they can, they're so, you know, adept and all that. No, I... I basically tend to keep my sentences short and I just get up there and sometimes I swear because, as I say, Trump was so horrible that if you were not uh, moved to swearing once in a while, you're not paying attention. <laughs> so it's very freeing to become more myself. Yeah. <laughs> the last chapter of your book deals with your experience during the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Of course, you were in the Senate chamber voting on the Electoral College uh, reports. Tell us about what that day was like for you. 
it was an, an amazing thing to be rushed out of the Senate chambers. We, um, I, I saw the vice president being rushed out. We weren't really sure what was happening. And when we were in our safe area, we didn't know what was going on outside until they brought the TV cameras in. And it was shocking and astounding to see the storming and the siege of our capital uh, and, to, and to realize that the, these rioters were very serious. I, I knew that if they caught any one of us, uh, they, we, we would have been harmed. And when I saw the images of what was going on in the U.S. House and my friends hunkered down, and they, um, it, it was just horrifying. And yet we couldn't get this guy convicted of uh, you know, an insurrection. And uh, in fact, eight of your colleagues in the Senate continued afterwards when you finally went back to complete the day's work Eight of them voted to reject votes of the Electoral College and, and prevent Joe Biden from taking office despite what had happened. You see these people virtually every day. What is that like for you? It's not as though I have a lot of uh, interactions with them. Although for a while, um, uh, when Ted Cruz chaired the subcommittee on the Constitution and I was the ranking member, so he would have these hearings and I would need to show up and I would have these <laughs> exchange verbal exchanges with them i didn't put it in the book but there, there was an interview that i did where someone asked me so what you know what would you say and basically i'm just basically f you kind of thing <laughs> because he deserved it okay we won't go there but uh, it's not easy well, why what, what am i supposed to say to them how could you vote to kick off millions of people off of health care just like that without a second thought how could you not hold this president responsible for an incitement to an insurrection where people die you know these are not the kind of conversations i can have because they do and did what they did and they continue to push the big lie where hundreds and hundreds of voter suppression bills are being considered by states all across the country so the, the big lie is still perpetuating that the country is still divided in ways that are so harmful. We at least now have a president who cares, who will take responsibility to gain control of the pandemic, who uh, will look at facts to make decisions, which is a huge sea change compared to the narcissistic, petty, vindictive, spoiled brat that used to be there. Senator Maisie Hirono. Her wonderful new book is Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator, thanks so much for talking with us Thank today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you. Everyone, aloha. Stay safe. Be kind. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page, where he had a piece on Wednesday. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Great to be here. Eli Broad died last week. 
He had about $8 billion, which he made building houses during the Southern California boom of the 60s. He ended up one of the five richest people in Los Angeles, and the obits praised him for his philanthropy, especially in the L.A. art world. We have the Broad Museum on Grand Street. We have another Broad Museum at LACMA. He rescued MoCA a couple of years ago when it was going broke. He rescued the Disney Concert Hall when it ran out of construction funds. But there's another thing about Eli Broad that barely got a sentence in the obits. He co-chaired Democrats for Nixon in 1972. I guess it's not surprising that a multimillionaire at that time would have fairly conservative politics, but there's a bigger story about the role of rich people in LA politics. It's something you've written about many times in the Weekly, the Washington Post, the LA Times, including the Wednesday piece. They haven't all been like Eli. Where should we start? Well, uh, the rich have always been with us in Los Angeles, as they've always been with us everywhere else. And they have, uh, as the rich usually do, at best, a checkered history. In Los Angeles, the uh, original dominant rich folk uh, were the Chandler family uh, back in the day when they owned the L.A. Times and they owned a big chunk of the rest of L.A. as well. And the Committee of 25, which was a a, a group of uh, almost entirely WASP, local business people from insurance, from real estate, from retail, who comprise kind of a uh, political clearinghouse and anointment center for Los Angeles in tandem with the Chandlers. And these folks, uh, you know, prided themselves on LA being a anti-union city. They would never endorse a liberal. They were opposed to moderate Republicans like Hiram Johnson and Earl Warren in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and they, they had a tight little town. You know, their emblematic political figure whom they raised from obscurity was a guy named Richard Nixon, starting with his first uh, congressional race in 1946. So that were those were the original rich people running the town. But the town changed. And they did not change. And so if we confine ourselves to the history of the rich elites, one thing this elite had done was keep out most Catholics and all Jews. So that uh, was uh, difficult to sustain. I mean, uh, they had no relations with the heads of the studios who were preponderantly Jewish. The the Jews had to set up their own country club, uh, the rich Jews, which was Hillcrest. And eventually, a renegade Chandler, uh, who had married into the family, uh, Dorothy Buffum Chandler, was trying to do the first big construction on Grand Avenue, something that Eli Broad more or less succeeded her uh, in doing. And she had to reach out uh, to uh, some, of these, uh, some of these folks uh, to get the music center built, Mark Taper being perhaps the the best known. But meanwhile, uh, when Eli Broad got to town, even if the Committee of 25 was uh, quickly losing relevance in the early 1960s, when Broad arrived, uh, there was a beginning of, of other groups that were not only not WASP, but with really different politics. And uh, sort of like Broad, they, the, the core group, which got the nickname the Malibu Mafia, uh, were born back east, but somehow ended up on LA's west side. 
and they were much more progressive and they came together funding candidates uh, who were running against the Vietnam War. And let's uh, name a few names. They're heroic figures in the history of liberalism in Los Angeles. They sure are. Uh, let's start with Stanley Scheinbaum, an economist who had a very wealthy wife who was a daughter of one of the Warner Brothers. Stanley began by uh, starting the Defense Fund for Daniel Ellsberg. He became the key funder and fundraiser for the Southern California ACLU, which kind of before you know, the tr political transformation of the 1990s, in some ways, the Southern California ACLU was the most prominent liberal organization in LA. Of course, they always had the LAPD to go after. Yeah. Uh, Stanley also on the side did things like uh, uh, have the first meeting of American Jews with leadership of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which more or less indirectly led to the first dialogues between Israel and the PLO. Quite, quite an interesting figure, an important figure, Stanley. And uh, there was uh, Harold Willens, uh, a manufacturer who later funded and founded the nuclear freeze movement in the 1980s. There was Norman Lear, who uh, brought liberal values to network TV for the first time in a bunch of comedy series, beginning with All in the Family, and who founded the uh, People for the American Way, uh, around the time that Ronald Reagan was uh, a new president uh, to really oppose growing intolerance in, uh, in the United States. And the one figure who was in some ways, I think, the, the real counterpoint to Eli Broad was Max Pilevsky, who was a, a computer entrepreneur, sold his company to Xerox in the late 60s, made a lot of money, used that money to be a, a leading funder of uh, Gene McCarthy's anti-war presidential campaign against Lyndon Johnson, and then was the lead funder of George McGovern's campaign, the very same campaign that Eli Broad recoiled against uh, in 1972, and funded a range of liberal publications over, over his life. He actually uh, helped save the nation from going under in the mid 80s. He provided some of the seed money for the magazine I've been editing for the last 20, 20 years, The American Prospect. And like Eli Broad, he was also a contemporary art uh, aficionado, helped with Broad, found the Museum of Contemporary Art, MOCA, and like Broad, had a number of celebrated disputes with the directors of, of MOCA. Uh, but these these four uh, had a real impact on Los Angeles in particular. Uh, they all backed uh, Tom Bradley's campaigns, and Pilevsky was the largest donor and chief fundraiser for the 1973 campaign in which Bradley became mayor, became the first African-American mayor of a really major American city. That was Pilevsky putting dollars into that. And, 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 and so... These four affected, you know, uh, real changes in, in the political culture uh, of L.A., however, uh, indirectly, and uh, helped make it a more tolerant and progressive city than it certainly was uh, before they uh, started. And there's been one other uh, crucial battleground that the, the billionaires have taken the lead in where Eli Broad was one of the leaders, and that's the push for charter schools. Eli Broad has spent millions of dollars pushing charter schools, 
uh, con contributions to uh, school board candidates in Los Angeles, to statewide uh, initiatives, to tax deductible foundations doing research to support charter schools. It's interesting that charter schools are also a big cause of Bill Gates, uh, the Koch brothers, the Walton family of Walmart. So billionaire Democrats and billionaire Republicans all are obsessed. I think it's ha have been obsessed with charter schools. What is it about rich people and charter schools? Isn't it well, enough for them just to put their own kids in elite private schools? You would think, but uh, actually I, I think it provides an escape hatch uh, when they start thinking about how American inequality has risen so precipitously over the last four decades. Uh, they generally see the culprit as public education, and that uh, feeds into they don't like unions, and so they don't like teacher unions, and, 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 and so it goes. But by so doing, they kind of also usually fail to look at other factors, the financialization of the American economy, the offshoring of many, many middle-class jobs and downward mobility of the working class, systemic racism, uh, other things which I certainly think, and many people certainly think, are more fundamental to the declining uh, living standards of, of working-class Americans, and not just working-class Americans, but in, in a sense, the schools have become, I think, a kind of scapegoat. And what, what's happened in California, because politically the Republicans have simply fallen off the map, they don't have enough votes to block anything in the legislature, uh, and the Democrats control uh, both houses of the legislature in every statewide elected office. So they, they have been particularly, and Broad in particularly, has been funding more conservative Democrats, uh, the kind of Democrats who in the last decade formed the so-called moderate caucus in, in Sacramento. Uh, a lot of those Democrats get funding from the charter school zealots and from the fossil fuel industry. And they've been a, a problem getting the state uh, on board with, with some green uh, reform measures. So, uh, you know, that's a it's a problem. And by the way, two heads of the moderate caucus have resigned in midterm over the last decade, one to go to work as a lobbyist for Chevron, the other to go to work for as a lobbyist for pharma. So we, we, we can see a pattern here. And Broad did, you know, fund such people. That doesn't mean he was insensitive to, uh, like, the demands of, uh, of people who want to preserve the planet and that he was friendly as such to fossil fuels. But, you know, he in effect, made a kind of common cause with them because of his uh, zeal against uh, public school systems and the teacher unions. I looked up the uh, who are the other billionaires in addition to uh, Eli in Los Angeles and checked up on their politics. Let's talk about this just briefly. Number one, until recently, was Elon Musk, who just moved to Austin to avoid paying taxes. Um, he calls himself socially liberal and politically conservative, but he's a big supporter of Joe Biden because of Biden's activism around fighting the climate crisis. Why would Elon Musk be so enthusiastic about climate politics? Well, because he makes electric cars. Uh, it's a transactional dynamic. And let, let, me, let me add, if you look at who over the course of his career, Eli Brode gave money to, it was on a transactional basis. I mean, he was a major supporter 
of Alan Cranston, who was a liberal Democratic senator from California for 20 years. But Alan Cranston gave a lot of legislative support to savings and loans and home builders. He was a go-to guy for their lobbies. And of course, what was Eli Broad, uh, a home builder? So Elon Musk is, is, at, is uh, following a, a well-established tradition in embracing Biden's greenness. It's good for his business. So now that Elon Musk has moved away from Los Angeles, the number one richest person in Southern California is Patrick Soon Shong, who uh, became a very big deal, of course, uh, in 2019 when he bought the LA Times for half a billion dollars. After that, he only had 20 billion left. Given that the LA Times started in the hands of the Chandler family, how would you describe the politics of Patrick Soonshong, the owner of the LA Times, today? Well, it, it's, a, it's still a little hard to decipher that. I think by all accounts, uh, he and his family just made a good hire for the new executive editor of the LA Times, Kevin Morita. People I've spoken to who are Times staffers are actually quite enthused. On it. We don't have a clear read yet on Patrick Soonshong, uh, so it, that, that remains to be seen. Uh, but, you know, uh, d- despite his great wealth, it's not clear that anyone is ever going to have comparable influence in Los Angeles like the original Chandlers, like Harry Chandler in particular, who provided seed money for the air- for the airplane companies and, uh, you know, built the Biltmore Hotel and uh, owned much of the San Fernando Valley. You know, I, I-, I think Eli Broad's sway in this city didn't match Harry Chandler's. And I don't think uh, the new owner of the LA Times has a sway that matches Harry Chandler's either. That's partly because when Harry Chandler was around, LA was a smaller city that was e- and it was easier to have your finger in every corner of the city, which is really no longer the case for, for anybody. Perhaps the most emblematic difference between Patrick Soon-Chong and the Chandler family is that under Soon-Chong, the LA Times was unionized and management accepted the union once the petitions were submitted without an NLRB election. That is big news for the LA Times. It is. Under the Chandlers, uh, the uh, uh, logo on the editorial page said, uh, like, uh, freedom under the law, whatever, and true industrial freedom. And true industrial freedom meant no goddamn unions. And that was <laughs> yes. the uh, really the most deeply held belief of uh, the Chandlers and the Committee of 25 during the city's formative years. And there's one other uh, billionaire richer than um, Eli Broad, who's been active in politics in LA, and that's David Geffen. He's sort of a mainstream Democrat big funder for Obama, for the Democratic Party. Uh, his biggest contribution last year was half a million dollars to the Lincoln Project. How did that work out? Well, the Lincoln Project was anti-Trump Republicans, some of whom were simply leaving the Republican Party. They did very colorful, uh, hard-hitting ads. It seems to have fallen apart since then, but they were part of the anti-Trump chorus, at least. And so that was, uh, you know, as contributions go, you could have done, you could have done worse than the Lincoln Project. And, and, you know, there have always been very wealthy people who come out of Hollywood. The uh, talent folks tend to be liberals, liberal Democrats, 
the studio executives have tended to be more conservative Democrats, or if you go back far enough, uh, Republicans. Uh, Louis B. Mayer, the uh, uh, guy who ran Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, uh, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, was actually the finance chair for Herbert Hoover and the finance chair for the Republican National Committee. Herbert Hoover. Wow. Not a name that anybody has much enthusiasm for. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but uh, that, that was where the original studio heads uh, uh, basically came down, with the exception of the Warner Brothers, who were conservative Democrats, prefiguring people like, uh, like Eli Brode, I suppose. We've only got a few minutes left, and I want to talk just briefly about Liz Cheney, the leading Republican standing up to Trump and, and Trumpism. It's interesting that it was not the, the Bush family that has become the, lead, the, the sort of lead of the fight to keep the Republican Party from going totally for Trump. It's the family of the vice president of Bush. She voted, just to remind people, to impeach Trump for incitement to insurrection after the January 6th storming of the Capitol. She has challenged his lies about the election being stolen by the Democrats. This week, the Republican leadership of the House is trying to strip her of her position in the party leadership. This is emerging as the central battle over the future of the Republican Party, whether they will become the totally Trump uh, party. What do you make of this battle and how come it's ended up being all about Liz Cheney? Well, it's all about Liz Cheney because she's really the only Republican in Congress with a megaphone and partly the only Republican in Congress at all who's still willing to uh, say quite loudly that the uh, Trumpian lie that the election was rigged, that he actually won it, is a lie. And what really has changed is that the Republican rank and file and Republican elected officials now buy that big lie that Trump is uh, that Trump has advanced ever since he fell behind on election night, and and so anyone who says no, the election actually was legitimate, actually was fair, and the result of electing Joe Biden is the uh, accurately reflects the the real vote count. Uh, anyone who says that is is now uh, really out of bounds, and uh, I have no doubt that she will be bounced from her leadership position. She ranks number three in the House Republican Caucus. I think next week when the House comes back and can vote, the Republican Caucus will unceremoniously bounce her. But, you know, I mean, this is part of the larger narrative of the Republican Party completely departing from any realm resembling reality. Last question. Do we have to call Liz Cheney a hero? Well, she's wrong on every issue except this, but, you know, a baseline support for the fundamentals of democracy uh, renders her such a unicorn in the Republican Party that on that she, yes, on that she is a hero. On everything else, we should run screaming from the room. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org and at latimes.com, where his piece on Eli Brode appeared on Wednesday. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, 
thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about what's on TV. For that, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor, longtime film critic for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and other places. We reached her today, once again, at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Well, today we want to talk about Exterminate All the Brutes. It's a four-part documentary on HBO Max that presents a sweeping historical argument about white supremacy, colonization, and genocide. Strong stuff. Very strong stuff from uh, directed by Raoul Peck, who uh, listeners may know directed the very wonderful documentary I Am Not Your Negro about James Baldwin. But it would, of course, be impossible to make a bad documentary with that mostly features James Baldwin talking because he was a wonderful talker. He also he's made a, a bunch of movies, including a very good one on Patrice Lumumba that I liked a lot and it didn't get much traction. Uh, and I'm also wondering why Exterminate All the Brutes, although it's been around for a few weeks now on HBO Max, hasn't been promoted more because it's an extraordinarily ambitious history from the bottom up of uh, world domination and uh, racism. Very much, he's been very much influenced in making this film, which is based on three books by Sven Lundqvist, not to be confused with Sven Nyquist, who was Portman's <laughs> cinematographer, uh, who has actually cooperated with him on making this project. And he was influenced tremendously by Howard Zinn's very famous uh, People's History of the United States, the idea being to deconstruct white supremacist history here and uh, then reconstruct it as a history of world domination. Um, he's also been uh, very much influenced by Joseph Conrad's equally famous novel, The Heart of Darkness. And these together have given him the inspiration for this four-part series in which he deconstructs that history and then uh, reconstructs it using uh, his own very dramatic and throaty voiceover to narrate a whole bunch of historical reenactments, archival footage, um, bits of movies, bits of paintings, and an extremely striking and rather unexpected um, score. He begins in episode one, which is a little bit heavy going. I think in partly, uh, I, I almost didn't continue because it appears to be positing the notion that white supremacy is nothing new, which is nothing new, and <laughs> <laughs> widely known, but he's somewhat presenting it here as a, as a discovery, a very recent discovery. Nonetheless, with the subsequent uh, episodes, or at least the next two, which is what I was, I had time to watch. He then goes on to make that history extremely specific with all these different um, uh, tools at his disposal. He and and Lundquist. The first in the first episode, he jumps around the world a lot to look at the sort of fascist fascification uh, of the contemporary world including you know the rise of of white supremacy in countries like Sweden that have been you know regarded as liberal later on in the series he's really um got it in for Winston Churchill but I'll try to get to that 
and uh, to the Holocaust, to African slavery and so on. But his twin subjects, connected subjects, are uh, the history of colonialism and the way it's tied into the history of slavery. And um, what follows is an often extremely graphic account um, of world domination by by the so-called civilization civilized nations who turn out of course to have inflicted uh, great violence of all kinds from uh, rape to mass murder and genocide on darker skinned races and nations all in the name of purity uh, of blood now again these are not especially um, new concepts but the ensuing episodes are so specific and so fascinating and go back so far in history to things that i had never heard of like the discovery of gunpowder by the chinese in something like the seventh century or something like that i can't remember exactly but it's certainly a very far back um, it is not for the faint, faint of heart. Um, these episodes are tied together by the actor Josh Hartnett, poor soul, who has to play an extremely <laughs> um, brutal plantation owner. I'll say no more than than that for people who intend to watch it. And I do. Hi the more the more I went along the more uh, fascinated and absorbed I got. He's playing a real person named Thomas Sidney Jessup, who was a slave owner, uh, to put it very mildly, on a very large scale. And he stands in for, um, for, for all of those uh, who enslaved uh, the peoples of, of Africa and others. Later in the in the series, he ha he takes a crack at Winston Churchill, who, of course, these days has been so mythologized as the you know the not the father of democracy, but the one who saved the world for democracy. That people completely forget that he sold many African nations down the river uh, in order to ex you know maintain try to maintain Britain's supremacy as a world power didn't work <laughs> we don't even have hong kong anymore to to kick around the chinese have taken over but um all this is uh, you know is is brought alive i guess in such a uh, unflinching and graphic way and he mixes it in with his own history i'm a historian and i was very interested in the way exterminate all the brutes is very much an indictment not just of the colonial powers who practiced genocide, but of the history profession over the last couple of hundred years, which provided the justifications for conquest and, and genocide, the idea that the white man should rule because he discovered the dark continents and his natural superiority led him to develop all the wealth that lay hidden there. The fact that Peck can tell this story at all, as you've suggested, is the work of a new generation of historians since the 60s uh, who critique things like the idea that the American continent was a pristine wilderness just waiting for the white settler to arrive. That is now kind of the standard uh, version of American history taught in, in college uh, courses, and Peck is very much dependent on that, but it does show us how History isn't just the facts of the past, how it's implicated in the def either the defense of oppression 
or the an argument that uh, that critiques it. And I appreciated that part about him. He does interview these three uh, historians whose work he relies on. But I, it's also interesting to think about who exactly is Raoul Peck. You say he made some other movies, but his own life becomes part of this one. Yes, and, and it's an interesting one. Um, he, um, he's extremely well-educated. He's black, of course. And he has come become, I think, a kind of mouthpiece for the sort of, as you described, the post-colonial history that is now taught in college, but I suspect is not taught in high schools very much. So um, I think what young people get exposed to is the is the white story, and then they get the uh, the underclass um, history once they get into college. Because I, I saw very little sign of my daughter getting that kind of education at at uh, Samo High, which is a notably liberal. You know, it was high school, even though it produced Stephen Miller, um, <laughs> who, is, uh, who, who is, in fact, of course, uh, you know, the very avatar of white supremacy, <laughs> even though he is Jewish and comes from an immigrant family. So, uh, you know, Peck is extremely impassioned about about these issues, and he also points to, you know, the creation of the first Black Republic um, in Haiti. Uh, where he spent some time also. And the interesting thing is that he then broadens out, you know, the uh, clearly so much of, of white conquest of, of Africa and other countries was in, in quest of resources to help the species survive. But then he broadens out into um, the environment because he talks about the history of our attitude towards other species, animals and plants and so on, as if they could not be exterminated <laughs> so that, you know, people could continue to plunder them too. And of course, now we're faced with the prospect of that extinction also. So it reaches its tentacles into many different areas and synthesizes them um, in a very interesting way. So even though I began uh, by not being too sure about about this series, I uh, I came, I stayed to pray, as it were. <laughs> well, it's kind of amazing that such a deeply radical documentary would be streaming on the Prestige channel in America. In some ways, it's it's kind of a sign of how much things have changed after Donald Trump on the one hand and Black Lives Matter on the other, even if they're not promoting it the way we would like them to. The fact that it's on HBO itself is something that wouldn't have happened 10 or 20 years ago, I don't think. Exterminate All the Brutes in Four Parts. It's on HBO Max now. Now it's time for something completely different. I wonder if you can recommend a film that is not about colonization and genocide. I can. This is a film about chaos. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So the entire title is uh, Emily at, using the at for, you know, internet at the edge of chaos. Um, I saw this film when it first came out, I think in 2016. And uh, it is about chaos theory to some degree, but it's also much more entertainingly about the stand-up comedian and TV writer Emily Levine, who I believe you've had on your show in the past. Yes. Is correct? Um, she is a stand-up comedian, and I can usually only take about five minutes of stand-up comedy unless it's George Carlin. But she is extremely skilled at it. 
Emily Levine started to feel unwell in, I think, about 2010. She was very tired. She couldn't think. She suffered from brain fog, not COVID, obviously. And eventually she was diagnosed with a large tumor on her pituitary gland, um, which was not cancerous, but um, it was pressing uh, on the brain and she was feeling just terrible for a long time. And while she, so she canceled a lot of her TV writing and her stand-up comedy, and she started to read a lot of physics. And what this film is about is, is, the, is two kinds of change. One of them is very macro, um, which is the uh, paradigm shift from Newtonian physics to the new theories of, of relativity, quantum physics, chaos theory, and complexity that have resulted in a huge paradigm shift in the way we think not only about matter, but also social matter, as she calls it, our connections with each other. The other change was, as she puts it, from Emily 2.0 to Emily 3.0. <laughs> she becomes incredibly educated in this. Um, I should add that she was Harvard educated and, and uh, a real brainiac before any of this started. But she is also a tremendously good teacher and popularizer. So she is able to simplify some very complicate, complicated ideas for the general viewer, uh, among which I count myself, um, and in particular to extend it um, to uh, to try to get people to think not in the binary oppositions of Newtonian physics, but more in the new physics, uh, and then apply them to the political and social sphere so that we will be a less divided nation. Um, so in a way, it's a little, given that it was uh, first released in, in uh, 2016, it's quite ahead of itself. Um, she sees this as something America desperately needs, which I can't imagine any of our kind would dispute at this point. Um, the, the particular illness um, precipitated a huge expansion in growth hormone, so um, her, which resulted in very large extremities, among which her feet went from a size 7 to a size 10, and her head expanded in all sorts of ways. Um, they managed to get that. If you think all this material is very dry, think again, because Sir Isaac Newton is played by John Lithgow um, <laughs> and, and personified in an animated cartoon that whizzes around her head in a, on a strange vehicle. Ayn Rand is played by Lily Tomlin. Um, Freud is played by Leonard Nimoy and <laughs> Aristotle by the comedian Richard Lewis. And <laughs> Matt Groening plays Aldo Leopold. And wow. they're all... You know the the visual effects in this film are just magnificent. They're very funny, uh, but they're also they also help in the teaching of this, um, in the service of a, a more humane and interactive world in which we don't think I'm right, you're wrong, but rather I'm right and you may be right also, and let's discuss it. So um, what's happened is that, you know, a very minor film, which got no attention, is now being re-released on uh, Kino Marquis, where you can find it. I hope that it will then broaden out to others because it, I just so enjoyed <laughs> um, watching this. She's extremely funny. Alas, 
She then got sick again uh, with uh, stage four lung cancer and she died in, in 2019, which I think was a, a loss to comedy, but also a loss to humanity because she's a very humane interpreter, if also very pointed. To pile on the tragedy, her director, Wendy Apple, died in 2017, a few months after completing this movie, which neither of them deserved because it's an absolutely terrific um, and very entertaining film. It's only 61 minutes long. Emily Levine, At the Edge of Chaos, streaming now at Kino Marquee. We have time briefly for one more. Yes. This is a film that's been around for a while. It was it was first released in 2016 and was quite a hit with the critics as well as the public. Um, it's called Their Finest, and it's now playing on HBO Max. And I sort of had not seen it the first time around, was very delighted to see it on the second, directed by the Danish director, Lona Scherfig, who also made An Education, um, and who is very proficient at making very funny romantic comedies. This one is a romantic dramedy set right after Dunkirk in London um, at the time of the Blitz, um, when the British Ministry of Information uh, wanted to uh, make some propaganda films that would, you know, increase the morale of the British public and also enlist American support. And it has an absolutely splendid cast. Um, It's based on a story, a real-life story about a pair of twin sisters who were trying to reach Dunkirk to rescue um, the soldiers from the beach there. Uh, uh, These were, you know, grown sisters. And uh, it turned out that the story was, in fact, wrong because their boat broke down and they had to be towed back in a tugboat. But they uh, piled on a load of soldiers onto the boat as it went back. The cast is absolutely terrific, beginning with Bill Nye, who plays a very narcissistic actor who's um, hired to play a a drunken uncle. He's absolutely hilarious. Um, But there's a a woman screenwriter, um, Katrine, who's played very well and much more low-key by Gemma Arterton. Eddie Marson plays Bill Nye's agent, but he's killed in the Blitz very early on and succeeded by his sister as as an agent who's played by Helen McCrory, um, who is the wonderful British actress who played uh, Cherie Blair in The Queen, and uh, she died a couple of a couple of weeks ago. So that was pretty sad, but she's marvelous. Jeremy Irons as a very pompous minister of war, also very funny, and Richard E. Grant as a minister of information. Um, and there's a you know, it mixes in comedy and drama and and the tragedy of the Blitz, in which uh, you know my mother, my own mother, spent uh, some weeks. Uh, sleeping in the underground, <laughs> um, a very difficult period in the history of, of Britain and in particular London, and an ending that we really don't um, expect. So it's kind of a feminist uh, a feminist romantic dramedy. There's all sorts of romantic romance uh, grafted on, but it's done so well that um, you really love it. Their Finest on HBO Max. Ella Taylor is our TV and film critic. Ella, thanks again for talking with us today. My pleasure, John.
that's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music